Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 34, and today is all about male uh, fertility and infertility with Dr. Samuel Olander, and I got connected with him because of the amazing Dr. Allison Rogers. I interviewed her a little while back about sperm because she does this really unique thing. Every Monday, she does this like Sperm Monday video where she takes you into the lab, looks at a sperm sample, then kind of talks about Um, what's good about the sperm, what she doesn't like about the sperm, and all kinds of other wonky sperm. Um, And it's really cool. So if you don't watch those videos or you haven't seen them, um, on Mondays she does them and it's pretty cool. So you should uh, take a look at that. But um, during that episode, she kind of casually mentions Dr. Olander's name and and while we were talking about male factor and fertility. After the episode, I asked whether or not um, she would connect me with him and she graciously said yes um side note i am so blown away by these amazing doctors who actually take the time to respond to me and are so kind and then agree to come on the show like they're just a special breed um dr allison rogers dr amy Vazade, the egg whisperer dr rahi victory dr tia jackson bay dr stephanie fine dr jessica reineck dr murphy um and of course today dr samuel olander have all without hesitation accepted my request and have been completely open and willing to answer any and all questions just to help this community out and if you don't follow them go give them a follow and if you do follow them give them some extra love today just because um it's just so meaningful and i think having been in this position and having to reach out to so many people um it just to me really shows um how special they are and how generous they are because they 100 show up for all of us even when we're like not their patients and it's just so heartwarming to me because like I said I I put I'll put out these requests I'll email I'll call I'll um try and reach out to all these different specialists and um not everyone gets back to me (laughs) not everyone responds to my requests and um sometimes uh they you know just decide that they're too busy or it just requires too much time when these guys because you know usually when I go through an episode um there's a planning phase so we book time to plan what the episode will look like and then we book more time to actually do the episode so the fact that these guys are giving up that much of their time for free to like just share and educate us is so so meaningful and i am so so grateful for them um and i also want to thank all the kind souls that are trying to help me connect with more specialists to have on the show. You know, I want to talk to a reproductive immunologist. I want to talk to an endometriosis specialist. I want to talk to a sleep specialist. And those are the ones I haven't gotten to yet. I've put a lot of calls out. I've put a lot of requests out, but just haven't um, either gotten a response or haven't gotten anyone to agree to it yet. So 
Um, I'd be so grateful if you know anyone and connect can connect me to anyone. Um, and that way we can kind of see if we can get some of these topics covered on the show as well. So today, I know it's kind of a tangent, but I really felt it was important to bring attention to these really, really important people who've been so good to us. Um, but today we're going to talk about um, male fertility and infertility. And Dr. Olander brings um, a lot of his time and attention to breaking this down for us in really easily digestible um snippets. <laughs> and we talk about the most common topics that come up in male factor infertility and what exactly a male reproductive urologist is, what they do, and what happens when you go see one and then when you would need one. So um, he does a really great job of talking about these sometimes mysterious topics, almost like, you know, one thing we talk about is low testosterone. And so you think if you have low testosterone, you take testosterone. But what happens when you take testosterone is you decrease male fertility. And so like, what do you do, right? <laughs> it feels like a catch 22. So, you know, we kind of break down some of these topics today. Um, but I want to thank Dr. Olander for spending so much time and being so generous and breaking down these topics for us and with us. And he's agreed to come back and go into greater detail about any other topic that we're interested in. Um, he's open to suggestions. So if you're affected by male factor infertility and that's something that you're dealing with and there's a topic you want us to cover, please, please, please reach out. Let me know. Uh, let me know what your suggestion is. And that way, Dr. Olander and I can uh, build an episode for you. Um, as always, if you love today's episode, please leave a review, five-star review, written review, and then please share with anyone you think might find this beneficial. Okay, as always, I kind of go a little bit long, but I think today was important. So um, I hope you enjoy today's episode and let's get started. Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. Today we have Dr. Samuel Olander here with us. He is a reproductive urologist and he's here to talk about everything that he does because honestly, I have no idea what he does. And so we're here to learn more about that. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Olander. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I, I don't think that you're you're alone in not knowing what a reproductive urologist does. I think that it's it's probably a pretty common thing and I think most people probably don't even know that they exist. Yeah, I mean, I didn't until uh, Dr. Rogers, Allison Rogers was on um, a little while ago and we were talking about sperm because I was like, well, we don't ever talk about sperm enough. And then so she was talking about sperm and then she started talking about reproductive urology. And I was like, wait, time out. What? <laughs> what is this? They exist where? Who? How? When? when? Like, I need all the information. She's like, oh, talk to one of my colleagues in my practice. And I was like, oh, great. So that's how we got this introduction, which I'm so grateful for, um, for us to have and kind of have all this conversation around, I think, you know, the male side of things that I don't think, I mean, they're 50% of the equation, but I don't think we spend nearly enough time, I think, 
because so much of it happens to the female that I, we don't talk about, you know, sperm and kind of the male factor portion as much. And I think there's a lot of stigma around it still. So I just definitely think we should bring more attention to it, you know? Yeah, I agree with you completely. And I think it's one of those things too, where guys aren't typically established in the healthcare system at, at kind of a young age. I mean, females are seeing their reproductive physicians, their OB guys, so they, mm-hmm. they have established care. And Guys don't really have that. They aren't seeing doctors on a regular basis when they're in those reproductive years. So they're a little bit apprehensive in in terms of seeking care and and going to get checked out. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's start simple. Let's start with how you got into this reproductive urology space. How did you find out about this and how did you get here? Yeah. So, um, geez, I'm trying to figure out how how far back to go on this. Um, (laughs) We can skip birth. So... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of people even in medical school don't even know about the field of urology. Uh Um, I think it's something that people get exposure to kind of late in the game as a surgical subspecialty. Um, Me personally, I was very fortunate. I've got an uncle that was a uh, urologist, practicing urologist. So I had that early exposure and knowledge of the field. So I kind of went into into medicine knowing that I liked surgical subspecialties and um, thinking that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon and then realizing that uh, just sports alone doesn't doesn't make you love that field. <laughs> so I, I, I looked into uh, into urology and kind of fell in love with the, the various pathologies, the quality of life issues that are associated with it um, and, and that side of things. So um, then pursued a urology uh, residency and, and was fortunate to match at my, the same institution that I was a medical student at, which is the University of Illinois Chicago. Um, and at the University of Illinois Chicago, we have our, our chairman, uh, Craig Niederberger, and one of our former chairmen, uh, Larry Ross, are both male reproductive physicians. So I was very, very fortunate with that regard because a lot of programs and training training programs throughout the country don't have somebody who's who's trained in or who practices male reproductive medicine within their um their training program. And so it was that early exposure uh, to those guys and, and learning some of the, you know, kind of some of the areas that, that we still need to learn more about and seeing those patients early in, in my residency training and then doing some research with, with Dr. Niederberger as well during my the research here of my residency, which kind of solidified my interest with the field. Um, our fellow, um, we have a fellowship at the University of Illinois as well, the fellow that I worked with um, a lot, um, Jim Hotelling, who's at, at Utah now, was also very influential for me and me too. He was uh, a great guy to work with and, and really helped me out and, and helped me learn more about the field. So, I mean, for me, it's mentors. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's the people that I had um, exposure to that helps me with um, with gaining the knowledge and it, it just helping me fall in love with, with the field and the patients and the potential. Mm-hmm. Um, is a big part of it too. So, um, you know, for me, then I, I made my way down to to Baylor for my fellowship, and I worked with uh, Larry Lipschultz down there, who is, you know, one of the the giants within the field of, of reproductive medicine. So, uh, again, it's the mentors uh, that that have allowed me to kind of to get into this field, help me learn about it, and help me me build and, and start my career off within it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and let's even break that down a little bit more. So what's the difference between a, like a general urologist and a reproductive urologist? What are the differences? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, and it's 
it's something that I think, again, most people don't know. Yeah. Um, a general urologist is probably more along the lines of like what a general OB-GYN doctor is. Um, they, they go through, a general urologist goes through a urology residency program, which is five to six years of training. Um, and then they focus their career on the various aspects of the general urinary tract. Uh, and so they're treating things like kidney stones. They're treating things like recurrent urinary tract infections, incontinence, large prostate, prostate cancer, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, all sorts of different things, which male reproductive care is, is a component of. And honestly, it's probably a small component of, of what most people are getting through their, um, their residency training. Um, and then a male reproductive physician would be someone more so that has chosen to subspecialize within the area of male reproductive medicine and surgery. Um, and even within that, that can have different aspects. I mean, some guys might be, or some people might be more focused on the male fertility. Some people might do a little bit more of the sexual health side of things, mm -hmm. um, treating erectile dysfunction, those components. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, there's somebody who has, has done additional training typically one to two years beyond the five to six year urology residency to really focus on, on male reproductive care. And typically then they're just doing that. They're focusing on, on the male. Um, they're not treating typically females where a general urologist will treat, um, you know, general urinary conditions of mobile men and women. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when would someone come see you or when should someone come see you? Um, when would I like someone to go to me? Is, <laughs> okay, is that's that a better the, question. <laughs> <laughs> is I would like to see guys as, as early as possible. You know, as soon as a couple is understanding that things aren't necessarily happening, I think it's worthwhile to to start getting the male evaluation too. Um, getting the male evaluation early on, kind of in that fertility journey, helps guys uh, address issues that might take a little bit of time to to really treat or to improve or to optimize. So really the, as early as possible, I think gives gives us more options. Um, you know, it, it might be as simple as a guy comes in, he has discussion, maybe does a semen analysis and gets a physical examination. And then we say, everything looks okay for now. Not saying that there's no male factor component, but saying, I don't think we need to do additional testing right now. Let's, let's continue on the female side of things, um, uh, which is going on in parallel. And, and maybe reevaluate things later. Um, other times, I think that you know I'm getting patients um, that they're they're not having success. Maybe they've they've had some miscarriages. Maybe they've gone through a few IUIs. Maybe they're seeing declining semen parameters or something that their uh, the female reproductive physician is picking up. Um, or maybe it's something you know where they do a semen analysis with someone and they're recognizing a significant concern that they, they feel um, mm -hmm. they need to see me. So there's there's also sorts of different time points. Uh, I think that guys come into male reproductive care. Um, my general thought is just as early as possible is, is always a good thing. Mm -hmm. And does that like, so, you know, like on the female side, you were mentioning earlier, like we have a lot of touch points throughout our lifespan where we would go see our gynecologist, right? So we go and do our regular pap smears, things like that. Is there a version of that for men that they should do a check regularly at some point, like starting at a certain age or no? You know, there's not as much, um, at least early in the reproduction years. Once you start getting into, um, you know, the age of, of 
grow that 55, you're going to start doing some prostate cancer screening and things mm -hmm. along those lines, which some primary care physicians feel comfortable doing that. Some prefer that they see a urologist for, for those mm -hmm. things. Otherwise, most guys are coming and getting the evaluation by a urologist or a, a male reproductive physician um, if, if they're having some sort of complaint. Mm -hmm. um, there's not general screening that guys are, are typically doing. You know, we're mm -hmm. doing our own self-examinations for testicular cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that, that we're doing on our own. That, mm -hmm. that hopefully pediatricians should are, be doing are kind yeah. Of teaching. <laughs> yeah should be doing exactly yeah um are, are hopefully kind of understanding the process of what they need to be looking for and things and then guys are generally um you know, left to their own uh, their self to kind of do a little bit of that screening and check for any yeah. sort of masses or anything yeah um now what are some common conditions that you see or that you treat or i guess actually let me back up so you had mentioned a timeline if people have been trying for a while and they haven't they've been struggling what's your time frame for that like what is a while or struggling i'd say it's similar to the female side of things okay. so when that female evaluation you know a year of unprotected intercourse without a pregnancy or you know uh, six months over the age of 35 i think that when the female partner is starting her evaluation starting to undergo uh, the diagnostic test, it's worthwhile to initiate the male, uh, male evaluation as well. Okay. Um, okay. So now back to the other question I was going to ask is, um, what are the common conditions that people will come in to you for? What do you see a lot of? Yeah, this can be kind of all over the board. Um, and I can kind of break this down into a few different areas. Um, I think that, um, you know, one area is sperm. You know, a guy will have had a, you know, a sperm test, a semen analysis, and there's some component of it that's abnormal, so they'll get referred over to me. That might be that the counts are low or there's no sperm present at all. It might be that the ejaculate volume is low. It might be that the sperm has poor motility or poor, there's poor morphology or poor abnormal shape to the sperm. So um, I would say that oh, probably 95% of guys come in to see me having already had a semen analysis. So I'd say that's a, that's a big component of what we do is evaluating and treating abnormal semen parameters. Um, and, and a big part of which, you know, I can talk about that now to a certain degree of, the, of my initial evaluation of, of the male is along with getting that general medical history and, and, and everything is educating and giving my interpretation of the semen analysis. You know, I'm taking a look at these things, but I, I also want the patient to understand what those results are, what those results mean. Uh, you know, I want them to understand uh, kind of the word normal as it relates to a semen analysis um, and, and what these different reference ranges that we use mean. Um, so, so let's say I've, I've got a guy coming in and he's got a semen analysis. What I'm going to take the time to do first is I'm going to talk to him about, okay, what, what's, what are the reference ranges? What is that? And I want them to understand. So like, you know, the world health organization established those. They've gone through multiple iterations. And, and the most recent one is basically they took a whole bunch of guys who got somebody pregnant within a year. So a bunch of fertile guys, and they took semen analyses from these guys. 
And then for the different categories, they took the bottom fifth percentile, and that's what they made as the reference range. So I think that's important for guys to understand because these reference ranges that we that we have and that we use for guys, it's not really a, like above it, you're fertile, below it, you're infertile. That's not that's not what it represents. And really, I, I hate that we use the word normal with these because it's not really that above these numbers, you're normal and below these numbers, you're abnormal either. Um, you know, oftentimes I'll talk with guys about concentration. So the amount of sperm that's in the volume of fluid that they have is essentially what concentration is. And, you know, a guy might have a, a concentration of 16 million per milliliter, and that's above our, our reference range threshold. But, you know, do we say then that that's normal? Well, maybe by, by the, you know, that definition, but the way I look at it is, hey, that's, that's kind of right at that fifth percentile reference range. If we can get that number up, let's try to get that numbers up, number up. Let's try to improve the chances of, of success. So I'll, I'll walk them through those different categories and make sure that they know not just where the, the reference range is, but I always try to give them an idea of like where other percentiles, where's the 50th percentile for, for concentration? Yeah, you're getting close to 70 million per milliliter then. That's a lot different than that fifth percentile, 15 million per milliliter. So trying to let them understand where their number sits in relation to the reference ranges, I think is, I think that's important. Um, and so, so, you know, one common thing that, that guys are coming into is, is sperm like that. And so, so we'll look for underlying causes of why those might be abnormal. Um, and, um, there's a lot of, a lot of different ways that you can go with that. Um, Let's let's say we go to let's say there's no sperm. We'll, we'll talk about that that scenario next. So if, if we're saying that there's no sperm in the ejaculate, that typically means a guy's still producing fluid. So there's something that's still coming out. That's that's um, you know there's different secretions that come from the testicle as well as from the prostate and what we call the accessory glands that produces a fluid. It's just those cells, the sperm cells within, um, aren't there. And there's that can be because there's an obstruction. There's a blockage so that the, the sperm aren't making their way out. Something like a vasectomy. I mean, it's a it's a medically induced obstruction, um, or it could be an issue of production that the testicle is not producing the sperm. So that's why there's no sperm in the ejaculate. And so part of what we need to do is differentiate and figure out the, which one of those that might be, and that's that's usually through various clues, usually with physical examination, assessing testicular size, assessing for the presence of the vas deferens and uh, which is the tube that carries the sperm away from the testicle. That's the tube that's cut during uh, a vasectomy. Um, we're making sure that that's there because some, some guys don't have them. Uh, we're doing hormonal testing typically to see, uh, you know, is everything at all from a hormonal standpoint appropriate? Sometimes there's clues on the hormones that might indicate that, that it's a, a production-based issue. And then, Based on whether it's it's obstruction or it's uh, a production issue, a non-obstructive issue, then we go down different different pathways or potentially different treatment treatment options or evaluation or diagnostic te techniques or steps. Um, so the hormones that that 
I would say are most important for us um, are one is testosterone. So testosterone is the, the male hormone. It's one of those things that I'd say most people have, have heard of testosterone. They might not necessarily know entirely what it does, but I think it's it's oftentimes kind of thought of as, as the male hormone. And it really is. I mean, it, it, it's involved in uh, different aspects of spermaturation, that process within the testicle. And then it has a lot of roles within um, within the body as well in terms of bone health, muscle development. Uh, it contributes to energy levels and sex drive, a guy's libido. So uh, there's a lot of roles that it has has there. Another hormone that we look at is estradiol, which is a circulating estrogen. Um, we all commonly think of that, oh, that's the, that's the female hormone. Well, well, guys have it too, and it's, it's important for guys too. Uh, we want some of it. Uh, if it gets too low, guys can have sexual health issues and things. So you you want to make sure that you have some estradiol. Um, but you want to make sure that you don't have too much because too much isn't necessarily a good thing. Just the same as too little isn't necessarily a good thing. And you want to make sure that the ratio of testosterone to estradiol is appropriate as well. Testosterone gets naturally converted over to estradiol within the body. So that it's kind of this big old loop that, that goes through the body that starts off up in, up in the head um, and uh, primarily the pituitary gland and then goes down to the, to the testicles to tell them what to do and then goes back up to the, the head, the hypothalamus and the pituitary and just keeps running around. And so that's testosterone and estradiol. Then we also are concerned about FSH, which is follicle-stimulating hormone. And this, again, is a lot of these are the same hormones that you hear about on the female side of things. In, in a male, FSH is the hormone that, that goes down from the pituitary gland to the testicle and tells the testicle to make sperm. So in instances where the testicle is kind of underperforming and not really doing what the body wants it to be, to be doing, we'll typically see that, that FSH hormone elevated because the body's going to try to try to throw that hormone down there and basically say like, do better testicle. Um, and sometimes the body responds and sometimes it doesn't. So that's, that's a hormone that gives us a big clue to things. And then the LH is a hormone that gives us a big clue with regards to testosterone production, just like FSH stimulates the sperm production. LH, which is luteinizing hormone, stimulates the testicle for testosterone production. So those are um, the, the major hormones, I'd say. I'd say. Typically, when I'm doing an evaluation, I'm also going to get a few proteins that circulate, albumin and SHBG. Those matter to me because they stick to testosterone. So I'm not necessarily just concerned about a guy's total testosterone level. I want to know what his bioavailable testosterone is because that's the amount that's free, that's available for his body to use. And that's what, that's what really matters um, is the amount that's available to use. So I'll do a calculation um, to determine a guy's bioavailable testosterone. And all these things help me with a from a diagnostic standpoint, but also then help me as to different areas where I might be able to, to treat different areas where I can intervene to try to try to improve or optimize sperm production. Mm -hmm. Okay. So number one, sperm. 
<laughs> number yeah, two. Number one sperm. Yeah. And there's a lot. There's so many different ways that you can go with that. I feel like oh, I, can, yeah. I can keep talking about that. I, prob- I probably got sidetracked, so I apologize. No, 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 no. There will be other episodes. Don't you worry about it. We will have other episodes <laughs> where we can deep dive more into sperm, yeah. sperm count, whatever. I'm all I'm all about it. Um, but yeah. I, I, so, so we'll say, yeah, we'll say step one is sperm. Okay. Or is that the most common that you think you get? It's like yeah, top? I'd say that's the most. I'd say that's the most common reason guys get referred. Okay. Um, you know, like I said, it goes to, it, from that you go into a million different directions. Oh, okay. But the vast majority of guys are being referred for some reason, some abnormality on a semen analysis. I think okay. that's that's the most common. Okay. Um, so then I'd say that the next common thing that the guys would be coming in for would be something along the lines of, uh, you know, hormones, which, which we kind of just hit on there, mm-hmm. uh, testosterone being a big one. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it's becoming more and more popular because people are going out to T centers and things along those lines. People yeah. are a little bit more of t- aware of testosterone mm-hmm. as, um, as a part of male physiology and male health. Uh, so some guys are screening for it. They're having trouble with sexual performance. They have a decreased sex drive. They find that they're exhausted. Um, they're trying to be more active and working out, but they're not getting results. So they're going mm-hmm. to get their testosterone tested. Mm-hmm. So I'll oftentimes see guys that are coming in because they've gotten their testosterone levels done and they're low. And then we're exploring different options mm-hmm. with that regard. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those guys are guys uh, coming in they're trying to conceive mm-hmm. and not having success. And they have this and other times we're just getting guys coming in uh, that have those symptoms and aren't necessarily trying to conceive, or maybe they're um, preparing to try to conceive or something mm-hmm. as well. So you get them at all sorts of, of different time points in, uh, in, in kind of their, their family planning and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then is, another population of guys. Oh yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying, um, at these centers that they do these testing, are those accurate? Like, would you say that whatever the findings they have there, like the testing that they do, are they accurate in, in finding low testosterone? Like, would you say that sometimes like, oh, it's, you know, a little bit higher or lower? Or you say, yeah, they're, they're pretty on point with the type of testing they do at these centers? I think it's variable. Um, okay. Labs matter. And, and so personally i like to have have guys get the testing done at a, at a lab that i know more about mm-hmm. um which isn't to say that it needs to be a specialized lab or anything like that but mm-hmm. you know i don't i don't love it when i've got a results just from some clinic that i know nothing about mm-hmm. um, but if it's something like an established center, like a lab core even or a mm-hmm. university lab typically mm-hmm. i trust the the techniques that they're doing in running the lab. Mm-hmm. One of the big factors, though, is that it needs to be a morning draw, too. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times guys will come in thinking that they have low testosterone. Well, they got this at, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon when there's there's a natural decline in testosterone levels. And mm-hmm. it might look slightly low in that if they're looking at that number. But the reality is they're in the appropriate range. So they might mm-hmm. not necessarily need treatment or have some underlying abnormality. So that that is a big factor because I'd say most guys, if if they're not being um, treated by a you know, urologist or a um, endocrinologist or somebody who's who knows that a little bit more, I'd say there's a lot of afternoon um, afternoon draws. Otherwise, um, just because 
people don't necessarily know that that's something that they need to be doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry, keep going. <laughs> oh, no. So the other subset of guys that I was going to talk about is the guys that um, have, maybe they've been diagnosed with with low testosterone and they're getting treatment with exogenous testosterone, meaning they're taking actual testosterone as, as a therapy, you know, whether that's a prescribed medication, there's a large population of guys that get it through, um, you know, T centers and things like that. There's a large population of guys that get it without a prescription too, through other services, whether that's a, you know, an online from their friends, from their trainer at the gym, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all sorts of avenues guys are getting testosterone and you know the tough thing about testosterone is it's honestly it's it's a great medication for a lot of reasons for guys that have low testosterone it it helps with a lot of the symptoms that people might be experiencing but the one thing that it doesn't help with is sperm production Mm -hmm. because it has the opposite effect on that you know the body gets all this testosterone that's coming in through a gel or an injection you might feel better energy levels you might have better quality erections you're feeling good your testicles are like we are good we yeah. do not need to do anything <laughs> so they're just going to take a break and then they're going to stop sperm production with that too mm-hmm. um and so conceptually guys think okay my testosterone's low i'm having trouble with you know sexual function um we're having trouble conceiving that somebody told me i have low sperm count let's get more testosterone in and unfortunately, it's, it's counterproductive. Testosterone is the most studied drug for male birth control. Uh, it's not good enough to be a form of male birth control, mm-hmm. uh, but it's pretty darn close. It drops, drops, drops counts real, real low. Mm-hmm. Do you find that a lot of your patients come in surprised that if they are on a fair amount of testosterone, that that's one of the obstacles that's keeping them from conceiving? Um, yeah. I, I do find that guys are the guys are surprised. I find that you know, guys are surprised to find out that that low testosterone could be a contributing factor, and guys are surprised. A lot of guys who are taking testosterone are surprised to find out that that's that's a contributing factor to their their struggles as well. So yeah. both of the, both of those populations, you know, I think have trouble um, and, and caught off guard a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we can talk about this now or later, but how do you treat low testosterone without giving testosterone <laughs> yeah and it, unfortunately it's all off-label um uh, you know, all these treatment options that we're doing that it's not the fda intended purpose of the different medications that yeah. we use um so sometimes that can make life a little bit challenging mm-hmm. um but the, but there certainly are options uh you know the biggest medic i'd say the most common medication that's being used is clomiphene citrate which is which is clomid which is a very commonly used female reproductive medication mm-hmm. um and in men it can be used to stimulate the testicle um it's a little bit different how guys take it and, and, and things along those lines, but it's a, it's a great medication. It's got a relatively low side effect profile, and it's one of those things that works pretty well in terms of bumping up hormonal levels, and a decent chunk of guys get improvements in semen parameters with that with that bump up in the in the testosterone levels. Uh, you know, some guys feel improved symptomatically uh, from the, the hypogonadal, the low testosterone type symptoms. You know, some guys just don't. I, I wish I had an explanation for all these guys that have, you know, a great response from a blood level as to where their testosterones are, but they, they still feel like they have a little bit low energy mm-hmm. um, and lower libido. They, they mm-hmm. don't have a great answer uh, for those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so the Clomid's one medication, Clomiphene Citrate. Um, we use different, you know, aromatase inhibitors if we're finding that the testosterone to estradiol ratio is off 
We're using what we call gonadotropin therapies. That's those hormones that I talked about previously that come from the pituitary gland. Um, HCG, which is human chorionic gonadotropin, is a commonly used medication to more directly stimulate the testicle. Um, that's an injection. Um, it's a pretty frequent injection. Um, that, that may or may not be covered and can sometimes have a higher price tag associated with it. So usually clomiphene citrate is, is going to be kind of one of the earlier options that we're going to use just because of ease of use, pretty darn good efficacy. Um, and it's, it's more expensive than some of the other options. So, you know, there's, there's a handful of options that we do have that are, are very fertility safe. And I know for women, like we get all crazy when we take Clomid. <laughs> we have our like Clomid side effects and stuff like that. Are Do the men have like different side effects from medications or do they just coast? No, you know, guys are going to have side effects too um, or potential to have side effects too. Mm -hmm. And I think anytime you're doing something with the hormones, the mood-based kind of side effects are, are always a possibility. Mm -hmm. You know, guys might get a little bit moody. They might see that they're a little bit more emotional at times. They might have a little bit shorter fuse if the testosterone's, you know, while things are kind of stabilizing out. If they're getting too much of that testosterone conversion over to estradiol, uh, they might find that they're a little bit more emotional. So, you know, it's finding that balance. And I think that that's another big important part about compliance with care too, is that, you know, physicians, as they're starting these medications, it's not like, here's a pill, see in six months sort mm -hmm. of thing too. It's mm -hmm. important to, to get follow-up blood work. Usually I'm getting that about four, four weeks down the road to see kind of how their body's responding to things. And then I'm going to talk to these guys that, what are you feeling? You know, are you are you having breast tenderness with these? Because hey, guys, mm. might get that. And, mm -hmm. and there's things we can do about it too. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, guys can guys can certainly certainly have side effects. I wouldn't say that they're common mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and everything, but but guys can have them, and then they get some of the good side effects too. They might get some you know improved energy levels. They might get a little bit better quality of erections. Usually, mm -hmm. guys light up a little bit when I start listing that as a potential <laughs> side effect. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Um, okay, so we have uh, sperm uh, count, a semen yeah. analysis issues. We have low testosterone as another common thing that we see yep. uh, patients for. Uh, what other stuff do we see? So another thing that I would say is pretty common is varicoceles. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that if you, you're out in the, the Google world trying to like figure out what's going on from a male fertility standpoint, that's something that's going to continuously come up mm -hmm. uh, as well. Varicoceles, what they are is they're dilated veins um, coming away from the testicle. And so I think it, it, easy to conceptualize thing is you think of varicose veins in the leg. It's a little bit similar, different kind of underlying pathology of what they actually are, mm -hmm. but they're dilated veins. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not something that you're going to always be able to see. Like they're not within the skin of the scrotum or anything like that. There's something that a, a male reproductive physician is going to be able to feel though. Mm -hmm. It's a physical examination finding. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to kind of the importance of seeing a male reproductive physician too, because there's these things that we could pick up that aren't necessarily things you see on a semen analysis. Mm -hmm. They're things that you need to have a physical examination to see. Mm -hmm. And so varicoceles, these dilated veins, they can happen on the left or on the right. Um, they're more common on the left just because of the way the anatomy is and, and different things along those lines. Um, but um, 50, 
15% of guys have them, they're not impacting fertility on 15% of guys. And that's one of the most difficult aspects is we don't have a great way of saying, oh, this is a clinically significant varicocele versus this one over here that's present as well. We don't have real easy diagnostic or testing criteria. We can look at a semen analysis and a varicocele associated with abnormal semen parameters, meaning low count, slow motility, low morphology, things along those lines. Um, that might be more likely to be clinically significant. If we're seeing, let's say, you know, sometimes the testosterone can be a touch lower from that negative impact from the varicocele. Sometimes the FSH can be a touch higher because the testicles under strain, so the body's trying to stimulate it by throwing more of that, that FSH hormone down to stimulate sperm production. So, um, you know, that's something that, that could be there. And um, the way that it's impacting fertility is that it's changing the temperature. That's the, that's the thought. You know, with, with, there's all, been all sorts of testing done on this, and we, the, the true mechanism is still up for debate. But the thought is that it, it changes the temperature. You know, the scrotum sits outside the body. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the testicles like to be a little bit cooler, so they hang out outside the body. Mm -hmm. And when you, you dilate these veins... There's more blood pooling down there. So it brings that temperature up just enough that the, the different enzymes and the environment that sperm production occurs in is a little bit hotter. And it just doesn't you know, happen in the optimal way that it normally would. So that's the thought on how varicoceles can kind of impact the semen parameters. And that's how it can impact the production side of things. And so, you know, there's different ways that we might be able to address those. Um, there's, you know, sometimes we'll try to bypass those with different aspects of assisted reproduction and things as well. Um, and, and not every guy that has a varicocele needs a surgery to fix it. So it's, it's important to take each one of those situations and each one of those physical exam findings on a case-by-case -case basis, evaluating all sorts of different factors within that couple. And it's that couple because you're not just necessarily treating just the patient. You're taking mm -hmm. into fact, you know, female considerations as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, um, that's one thing that I'd say is, is relatively common for us to see, really common for us to identify and, um, and common for us to treat too. Treatment's a, a, typically a surgical management. So it's usually treated by, by surgery to tie off those veins. So is that, what, is, there's an incision and they're tied off or how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So if we if we do you know have this discussion, we decide. Listen, we know that these are present. We think that they're clinically significant. Uh, we think that the patient and the couple would have benefit to treating this. Mm -hmm. Then we we go or the way that I treat them uh, is we go to the operating room. We're under an anesthetic typically, and um, it's an outpatient surgery. Meaning you come in, you go home the same day. And there's there's an incision on either just the side that there's varicocele on, or if there's varicoceles on both sides, you'd have two separate incisions. I would say this, the incisions are typically about four centimeters or so, mm -hmm. and it's usually going to be located kind of, um, if you take the base of the penis and you kind of go off to the sides, it's kind of in that groin area. It's where we mm -hmm. think of people having hernias and such. Mm -hmm. It's kind of right in that area. Mm -hmm. There's a few different approaches to how, how you can do this, but most of them are done with an incision in that area in what we call either an inguinal or a subinguinal approach. Mm -hmm. that, that area in the groin there is called an inguinal region. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we use an operating microscope too. And that's an important aspect because there's lower rates of a recurrence uh, and, and lower rates of, of potential you know, side effects from the surgery and things uh, if, if you're using an operating microscope. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's another area where a reproductive physician is typically trained in those microsurgical techniques and will use that method of treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you make that about four centimeter incision. You go down, you find the area where the, the veins are located in what's called the spermatic cord, which is the collection of veins, the, the artery that goes down to the testicle, um, carries blood down to the testicle, and then the vas deferens, which carries the sperm away. And then we use different tools to identify just the veins. We make sure that we're not getting any of the arteries, and we tie off those veins so that blood isn't able to come back and pool down. There's guys always kind of wonder, okay, well, what happens to the blood then? Mm-hmm. And there's there's alternative pathways where where the blood can channel away. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not like all of a sudden the blood's just going to accumulate there and mm-hmm. swell or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's kind of the process. I tell you, you know, as it, it's an outpatient procedure. I always tell guys you expect to be you know at the surgical center about a half day dealing with the different aspects of things, but usually it's far less than that. And I don't know if this is true, so you'll have to correct me if this is incorrect, but I think I've heard that other specialists might do procedures for this as well, like interventional radiologists uh, might do their, I don't know what's involved with all of that, but I think I understand that they might do it. What's the difference in technique? Yeah, so an interventional radiologist will typically do, um, treat this by means of embolization, something along those lines. And, and one interventional radiologist is, is there a radiologist? So you think of radiologists as somebody who reviews CT scans, ultrasounds, makes a determination on the, the pictures and the different imaging techniques that there are. But interventional radiologists is, are the doctors who use different types of imaging modalities to do procedures. Mm-hmm. And so what they'll do is they'll make a little access point into one of the larger vessels, kind of accessing usually through the groin area mm-hmm. um, and they'll, they'll inject some dye uh, to kind of give a picture of the vasculature that goes through that area mm-hmm. and then they'll try to weave little instruments down into those veins to put a little coil or something that can that can potentially block off those veins so mm-hmm. they're kind of treating it from the inside mm-hmm. they're they're blocking the vessels off mm-hmm. um, i think that um IR embolization or sclerotherapy of, of these vessels, it, it's a good alternative. It's something that I do to mention to guys. I tend to recommend it more so in an instance of maybe a, a recurrence mm-hmm. uh, or persistent varicocele following, following surgical management. Um, I, I think that the um, you know, the recurrence rates are, are a little bit higher with an embolization procedure mm-hmm. than they would be with a um, surgical management, but it's still it's still an option uh, mm-hmm. for a guy. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to ask you. A little, uh, that, yeah, that procedure is a little bit longer typically, oh, okay. but there's not a cut mm-hmm. in the traditional sense. There might be a small yeah. cut to access the, the vessel, uh, so recovery might be a little bit easier. So, yeah, that would be my next question, too, is what's recovery for this after a surgical procedure? Like, are they down for any period of time? A little bit. I mean, you know, guys can be sore. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, we, we made a cut and, mm-hmm. and we dissected some of the tissues. So I tell guys expect to be a little bit sore. Um, you know, I often am doing these procedures on a Wednesday and I tell guys expect to be sore and, and feeling kind of a little bit 
ginger in their movements and things through the weekend. That being said, that next week they're going to start feeling better, so they're not going to be too limited in in their activity at what they feel they're able to do, but I still want them to not be doing any sort of strenuous activity, heavy lifting, real prolonged standing or anything like that, typically for about two weeks. And some no sexual activity for two weeks too. And then that third week is, is when I have them kind of start easing a little bit more into their um, their exercise, their physical activity and things like that. And that's when I'm doing the subinguinal approach mm-hmm. uh, because I'm not going through the muscle connections uh, the way that I would be through a few different approaches. You're mostly mm-hmm. going through soft tissue planes there. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to require or be as concerned about that, that healing of the, the muscle connections. Mm-hmm. And so when would you expect their numbers to improve after this surgery? Yeah, usually it's around three months. Um, okay. And so anything that we're going to be doing to to treat and try to improve the production of sperm, it's usually going to be around a three-month time point. And that's if we're giving a guy a hormonal therapy to try to stimulate sperm production or if we're doing a surgical management to try to re- remove a negative impact on, on sperm production. Three months is when we're going to check the sperm again and start to see improvement. Now, that improvement might take more time. It might not be till six months that we see see the improvement. But usually it's around three months that we start start seeing that. Okay. Um, so I, I always tell that, guys, because that's that's an important thing to know, too. Um, you know, if you have somebody who is, you know, their partner is, is 40 and they have a varicocele and maybe their parameters are a little bit decreased and maybe they do have a big varicocele, but you might say, listen, I don't know that repairing that is the right move. Mm. I think maybe, maybe sometimes it might be just saying that, listen, IVF might be your guys' better option mm-hmm. because you have to take into consideration, you know, both partners mm-hmm. and a lot of different factors when you're, when you're doing these things. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a discussion for, for each individual. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we got uh, sperm semen analysis, low T, varicocele, What's next? Uh, well, the other thing I was trying to think of is like sexual function. So guys mm-hmm. can have erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So I get a fair number of those guys too. And that can be hormonally related or that can be, you know, stress of going through reproductive care and, and the dynamics of sex changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're having trouble getting an erection, well, you're, then you're having trouble having sex and then you're having trouble having a child. Mm-hmm. So that can play a big role too. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's treating ED, finding an underlying cause if that's present, um, and, and treating it. A lot of the the ED medications are, are very safe from a fertility perspective. Mm-hmm. They're not going to have deleterious effects, mm-hmm. and um, they're not going to be medications that you get a physical dependence on. It's not like you start taking them to help you out while you're trying to conceive, and then mm-hmm. the rest of your life you're going to be taking these medications or when you need them whenever that time is 20 years down the road, they're not going to work because you took them as you were trying to conceive. Guys oftentimes have a lot of concern about that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's just, it's not the case. These medications, uh, you know, you might get a little bit of a, a psychological dependence at times if thinking you might need it, mm-hmm. but, but usually guys can even overcome that pretty, pretty well. And so, so if you're, is, so if you're taking and 
this is just me thinking out loud. I know there's no science basis in what I'm asking, but um, I'm just trying to put pieces together. So forgive me. But so if you're taking medication for erectile dysfunction, they work by increasing, like by dilating blood vessels. So increased blood flow down to that area. Correct. Right. Is there any worry that you could get a varicocele from something like that? Could that happen? No, different okay. different channels. Yeah, okay. these medications wouldn't cause that. Varicoceles are something where you're you're not going to do something to cause a varicocele. Okay. It's just something that's going to develop as part of your anatomy, as just you know, kind of just within you that you're, you're not going to cause it. It's not like a it's not like a hernia mm-hmm. where oh you're you're lifting something really heavy. You're doing a lot of heavy lifting. You strain, and all of a sudden oh, I I popped a varicocele mm-hmm. or something. It, that it, it won't happen that way. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah, I think that that was a very logical question mm-hmm. uh, that you just asked because, I mean, conceptually, that makes sense. You know, yeah. increasing blood supply, am I going to make something worse? Yeah. But uh, different pathways. And, yeah. So it's not a concern for someone who has a varicocele who also has erectile dysfunction. Is that so, is that a, a concern? No? No. Okay. No, oh, okay. no worry there. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, You're cool. Good to go. <laughs> All right. All right. What's next? Or did you have more to add? Uh, Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're just going to take a quick break, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And now back to our episode. And that's why I say with with regards to erectile dysfunction, I think that, you know, again, it's another topic you can dive into. You can spend an sure. entire hour talking about erections. I think from you know a fertility discussion standpoint, it, it, it's more straightforward there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. The um, next thing I'd say, though, is ejaculatory dysfunction. Uh, so, you know, having an orgasm is one component, but producing an ejaculate is, is another component. So some mm-hmm. guys can can have that sensation where they feel like they're they're having the orgasm, mm-hmm. but then nothing's coming out. Mm-hmm. And so if they go to collect a semen specimen, they might not have anything to collect or they mm-hmm. might see that the volume's real low. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's trying to determine what's going on there or a scenario where they're never reaching orgasm. They're having trouble because of a... If, just can't reach the climax stage so they're not getting the orgasm so they're not producing an ejaculate mm-hmm. or they're having premature ejaculation and you know things are happening too soon mm-hmm. uh, so those are those are all a lot of different factors again can be hormonal um, uh, some of it can be acquired some of it can be a lifelong thing they're very I'd say the the premature ejaculation and the delayed ejaculation can be very difficult to treat Um, It's often a a lot of different steps, trial and error, Mm -hmm. uh, which can be very frustrating for the patient and and the physicians. Um, Retrograde ejaculation uh, usually is a little bit easier to to treat. Um, I'd say the most common, well, there's probably two common scenarios that I see it. Uh, One would be diabetics. Um, So Mm -hmm. with with diabetics, especially if they're not having uh, good control of their, their blood sugars, they'll start to get a little bit of uh, retrograde ejaculation or complete anti-ejaculation where nothing's going forward and everything's going backwards into the bladder. You're just not getting that tightening of the bladder neck to get get the pathway of least resistance to be forward. So the pathway of least resistance becomes backwards mm-hmm. and it goes into the urine. Um, 
there's medications that we can give to, to kind of help get things going back forward. And at the end of the day, if, if we can't do that, well, we can always try to alkalize the urine, take away some of that acidity, some of that toxic effect from the urine. And, and believe it or not, you can actually just have a guy urinate and if there's sperm in there and if the city's taken away, some mm. of that sperm sometimes can be taken out and used for assisted reproduction, which always seems so weird to me. Mm. Uh, but it's it's not invasive. I mean, it's mm. not a it's not a surgical extraction procedure. That's a means of getting a sample if a guy has that that pathology. Yeah. Do you do you only know that the, like how would you know that that's happening? That because you're not producing any volume of anything, and then you go on to explore and find out that it's going in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, that's it. It's going to be where a guy is saying, either a guy is saying nothing's coming out when I reach orgasm, mm -hmm. or he's having low volumes on his semen analysis. So mm -hmm. one of the things that they measure on a semen analysis is just the amount of fluid, how much volume is in that fluid. Mm -hmm. If that number's low, what we'll do is we'll do a test called a post-ejaculatory urinalysis. And so all that is, is we have a guy collect a semen analysis the normal way. And then afterwards, we have him pee in a cup, and we mm -hmm. look to see if there's a significant amount of sperm within that uh, within that urine. Mm -hmm. You know, if you see one or two sperm or something like that, that might just be from residual within the urethra. Oh, okay. It's all coming out the same spot. Yeah. So, uh, but if there's a, a significant quantity, if you're seeing millions of sperm in there, then you're you're feeling more confident, oh, saying, "Listen, this is what we got going on here." Mm -hmm. And how often do you find this? Is this pretty rare? Yeah, I'd say I, you don't see it that often. Um, I don't have a great way to put a number on that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I'd see it, you know. Like in a given month. Ever so often. Yeah, I'd say in a month I see probably, personally I probably see about maybe four guys with retrograde ejaculation. Oh, okay. It's not like weird yeah. where you see it once every six months. You're like, oh, it's been a while. But... Oh, no. No, it's oh, okay. nothing like that. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that comes from just how common diabetes is anymore. Mm. So, you know, we're seeing a lot, of, a lot of guys with diabetes, so we're seeing a lot of, you know, components of retrograde ejaculation. So it's, mm -hmm. it's definitely something that we're seeing and we're evaluating for uh, and, and looking into. Um, you know, we see the diabetics, and then if you're, if it's in, typically an older guy, like there's an older guy as a part of a, a infertile couple, he might be on medications for his prostate. Uh, it, you know, guys, as they get older, one of the inevitabilities for us is our prostate's going to get bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, and you may or may not have symptoms associated with that. And mm -hmm. so if guys are having trouble with uh, those urinary symptoms, usually the go-to medication is medication uh, called Flomax uh, or Tamsulosin is, is the name for it. Uh, and one of the common side effects of that medication is retrograde ejaculation. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's simple as reviewing a guy's medication history and saying to him, Okay, we need to either, you know, take you off this medication. We're going to switch to an alternative. If we find that these symptoms are, are just unbearable by taking you off that or switching you to something else, there's alternative medications that we use. And the unfortunate thing is that, you know, we're urologists as reproductive physicians. So we typically know how to treat those urinary complaints and things like that, too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a good understanding for the alternative medications that you use. It's not necessarily a situation where we're saying, okay, we want you to go back to this prescribing physician, talk with them about altering medications, 
and then you're coming back and it's, you know, kind of a delayed process. Usually it's something that you recognize and you can change right away. And is, so the connection with diabetes, is it just that if there's, you know, more sugar in the urine and that's causing an issue with the, the flow of fluid coming down? Like what's. They're not getting bladder neck contractility. Um, So it's, uh, you know, it kind of relates all back to these, the, the different neurological kind of sequelae or, abnormalities that can occur from having poor glycemic control. So it's not something that you're getting a bunch of sugar into the bladder and into the urine and that's causing causing the negative effects. It's, it's more so that, that contractility of the bladder neck and the, okay. the neurological, neuromuscular components of things. I see. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. This is this is fascinating. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, so that's, that's retrograde ejaculation. So there's the ejaculatory component. So that's something that we're going to kind of dive into and look for and you know if we're seeing that the the guy has low volume and that there's we do that urine test and that there's there's nothing in the um in the bladder we can do look for cysts that are in the prostate something that's maybe blocking off the area of the of the ejaculatory duct where it's exiting into the urethra to see if if maybe that's something that's causing an abnormality i'd say that's far less common even more so than, than, than retrograde ejaculation is some sort of anatomical blockage of the ejaculatory ducts. But again, it's something that, that we're looking for. Um, and then, you know, another thing is, is genetics. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the, there's different genetic abnormalities that can, that can be um, a reason for a guy coming into uh, to a reproductive urologist. And, and typically that's something I'd say that, that we're diagnosing rather than a guy coming in for it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if a guy has no sperm in the ejaculate, you know, we might do a, a battery of tests that includes a karyotype, which a karyotype is a chromosome screen, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and you're looking at the number of chromosomes, their arrangements. You know, you, you might see an abnormality on, on that, something like Kleinfelter's, which a guy is, is carrying an extra X chromosome. That, that can be a reason for a guy not to be producing sperm the way that, that he would. Mm-hmm. It's not something that that we would necessarily be able to fix. We don't have those sorts of therapies, but it's something that we would be able to diagnose and help give a guy a why for the reason. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, guys can have deletions of portions of the Y chromosome. Um, and that's important uh, for a couple of reasons, because if a guy has, has no sperm and we find that there's you know, a particular Y deletion, well, we know then that he's, he's not going to make a sperm. So, you know, we tell him that, doing things like trying to stimulate with medication, stimulate the testicles, or to try to do a sperm extraction procedure, those really wouldn't be appropriate treatments for, for him because there's nothing that we're going to do that's going to be able to get him to produce sperm. Okay. Or if he has a particular Y, y chromosome deletion that, um, that isn't related to no sperm production, but more so related to low amounts of sperm production, well, why that's relevant is if, let's say, they go through the pathway of in vitro fertilization and they have a child or they have an embryo and that embryo is male. Well, one thing to think about is the fact that, well, that mm. that male child's getting that Y chromosome. So they're mm-hmm. going to have that same Y deletion. Mm-hmm. Hey, 20 years from now, we might have gene therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be something that, that they could treat. Right now, we don't. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's just something to know more so is how I tell my patients. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, and then the last genetic thing that I think is is of relevance is, is cystic fibrosis testing. Um, mm. You know, sometimes uh, you know I mentioned that 
when we do the physical examination, we're feeling for vast deference. Some guys don't have vast deference. They don't develop. And usually it's because they're carriers of, of cystic fibrosis or commonly that's a, that's a cause. For, they don't get that development of the vast deference. And it's not something that we'd be able to reconstruct and repair or fix or anything like that. But usually the testicle's still making, making sperm within there. So then you're going to go along and do something like a, a surgical extraction for sperm. Um, and it, it, it's important to know if that's underlying, though, because then you'd want to be testing the female partner. So you can appropriately counsel that, that couple and say, listen, here's your chances of having a child with cystic fibrosis, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the most common ones um, that you talked about, you said um, semen analysis, varicocele, low T, uh, genetic abnormalities. If you have a history of diabetes, uh, diabetes or diabetics, they can have problems with um, flow of um, ejaculate. Um, mm-hmm. Am I missing anything else? To, was that everything? No, I think that's all we talked about. I'm probably okay. missing something that's like very obvious too. Um, that's okay. So, There'll so be other episodes. Think, oh man, that guy, yeah, what, what's he talking about? This thing's so no, happening. No, no. to talk about it. But, but think about it. Those are the, I'd say that's a big bulk of what we're seeing is, is those things right there. Um, and, you know, I think with the low testosterone is the, the, the kind of the use of testosterone therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's not necessarily low testosterone. It's that exogenous, that outside the body treatment of testosterone, mm-hmm. which unfortunately we're seeing more and more of, I'd say, in mm-hmm. my clinics of, of patients mm-hmm. that are think they're helping things um, mm-hmm. and really aren't. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing that in younger males? Like, do you think it's happening younger and yeah. younger? Or? Oh, okay. Yeah. It, see, I, I wouldn't say that it's it's really age specific. I think that there's, it's kind of across the board in reproductive age men. We're seeing, we're seeing a tons of guys that are coming in on testosterone, uh, why they started it. It's, it's variable. Sometimes it's, you know, when they're in athletics at at a young age and they're trying to kind of get that edge, build Mm. that muscle development. Um, and Mm -hmm. then they continue it. Sometimes it's guys who are younger, have a little bit of sexual side effects. So they, they, go to a T-Center or they go to a physician, you know, not saying just T-Centers or anything mm-hmm. um, either, um, but they go to somebody and start start on testosterone therapy. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I'd say that, uh, you know, counseling on the, the reproductive implications is very, uh, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that are excellent at it, that mm-hmm. patients come in on therapy, they mm-hmm. know that, that, that they've had these, they've been taking this medication that's going to impact it. Um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, some people have, have no clue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of backtracking a little bit, one of the reasons why people might come in is if they have, you know, problems with morphology or, um, you know, the number of, um, sperm or low sperm count. Um, are there like supplements or like lifestyle changes you can make that might change the quality of your sperm or what, or that semen analysis might look like? Yeah, this is always a really tricky conversation because the, the way that I tell guys is try to live a healthy lifestyle. So, you know, try to, you know, try not to eat a bunch of fatty food, try not to eat a bunch of fried food, fast food, things along those lines. Plant-based diets are awesome. Not everyone can do it. I can't do yeah. it. Mediterranean yeah. uh, diets are, are good diets. You know, try not to do much binge drinking. Yeah, a drink a night, just, you know, one drink a night, that's, that's not going to have a negative impact, really. Mm-hmm. But, you know, binge drinking, 
that's probably going to be a, a you know a negative factor. Um, supplements are a tough thing because the data out there on on supplements and whether they improve you know semen parameters and fertility outcomes is shaky at best. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think I tend to recommend that that if a guy's going to take take something, uh, a multivitamin, coenzyme Q10, which is a, an antioxidant, tend to be pretty good options. Uh, you know, but but to say that there's a bunch of data out there that supports supplements as uh, having real significant benefits, there's not. And it's, it's a huge debate, I'd say, within the male reproductive community, whether you make that recommendation or whether you tell guys, listen, you're spending a bunch of money money on something that's probably not really help, helping things. Because I think people are are pretty open to, to supplements. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd say one of the most common questions I'm asked is what supplements can I be taking to improve things. Mm-hmm. Um, the other question um, that I have too, that I think is important to bring up too, is at what point do you consider sperm donor? I, I think that's really tough. I think that if, if a couple's not having success with, with in vitro and, you know, their the equality seems to be pretty good. It's a, it's a young female partner. Uh, within it, and there's no obvious abnormalities. The egg quality looks okay, and they're having good yield. Uh, and, but you're seeing that semen parameters are, are just kind of a mess, um, and you can it's pretty suggestive that that it's a, a male factor. I think that yeah, you have that conversation mm-hmm. um, with with the couple about about donor sperm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that if you're uh, you know similarly with a couple and they're they're getting a real poor, poor embryo development, mm-hmm. um, and let's say you you see that there's there's real high like you know sperm DNA fragmentation or something. If you're doing sperm DNA fragmentation testing, looking at the integrity of the DNA. Um, if it's somebody who doesn't necessarily want to consider something like extracting sperm, trying to take sperm from the testicle where there's there's lower rates of DNA fragmentation, then I think something like donor sperm is a consideration as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's, you know, every couple is going to be a little bit unique on, on when they feel comfortable with that. I think it's important to mention it as an option. And I think it's always one of those things that you have to be very sensitive in how you're mentioning it too, mm-hmm. because people are ready for those discussions at very different points in time. Yeah. Um, and it can be really hard um, mm-hmm. because I think that oftentimes people will take it when you're using a donor gammy, well, oh, that's my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and lots of times you can't necessarily say with certainty that. I mean, it's rare that you can say with certainty that it's one partner or the other. Um, mm-hmm. So whereas one you might suspect, um, you know, it, people can take it hard. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to have those discussions, make sure that they're just you know, discussions and you're, you're gauging the comfort and, and you know, helping your, your patient kind of guide you within that discussion. Mm-hmm. And is there such a thing as advanced paternal age? There's like such a thing as like advanced maternal age. Is there such a thing yeah. as advanced paternal age? Yeah, there is advanced paternal age. And, and it's something we're learning more and more about. I think, you know, as we're getting less stigma associated with, with fertility in general, I think we're exploring the field more. And I think with that is we're exploring more aspects of male fertility. You know, we're getting away from that, that time period where everything was blamed on the female, which is 
which is a great thing that we're exploring the male side of things. Yeah. And we're not putting that entire burden uh, on the female side of things because it's, it shouldn't be. Um, and advanced paternal age is a real thing. Uh, it's not, I would say, classically as, as, as significant of a factor as, um, as advanced maternal age. What I mean by that is that guys are continuing to make sperm. So it's not like they're a set number of sperm where it's reading, reaching its maturation point. And, you know, it's, it's been around for a long period of time. We're still, we're still cranking it out. But mm-hmm. as guys get older, the quality, the quality of that sperm will start to decrease. Some. They start might have decreases in counts and they might have, uh, you know, that can start, you know, ages of you know, 35 and a little bit younger in certain aspects or parameters. Advanced paternal age in research has been all over the board as to what that age number is. Seems like the consensus is starting to come down to where they're using 40 as, as that age. Um, there can be some slight increased risks of, of you know, neuropsychiatric disorders, autism, schizophrenia. Um, the way I talk to my patients about it is it's, it's slight increases in risk of, of rare disorders. Um, so it's not like it's dramatic increases. And, and to be honest with you, the advanced paternal age, it, it's not going to be as significant of a factor as advanced maternal age is typically going to be on reproductive outcomes. But it's a real thing to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not something where I'm telling a guy, listen, you're, you're 38 right now. You should mm-hmm. bank sperm right mm-hmm. now because mm-hmm. you know, you're thinking that you're going to start to have a family yeah. in, in three years. Mm-hmm. So I'd say with the knowledge that we have right now, they're, they're, I'm not making those recommendations. Something mm-hmm. might change in the years to come where we determine that, listen, maybe we should be doing that. There's not data really right now to to suggest that that would be the route or the recommendation for guys. Um, and you actually bring up a good point that I was going to ask about earlier as well is, um, is there a time where you do want to think about freezing sperm for the purposes of fertility preservation. Because, you know, people with ovaries, we do that kind of stuff for all kinds of different reasons. Um, But in those with sperm, is there a reason when and where, what point in your life would you think about saying, hey, to preserve your fertility, you should freeze some sperm? Yeah, well, there's a few obvious answers for that. Mm -hmm. And, And those would be before, like, some sort of, uh, you know, cancer chemotherapy or something that could harm sperm production. So if you're going to be undergoing, you know, you're a 22 year old male, you're about to start some chemotherapy because of some malignancy. Yeah, banking sperm beforehand is something something you should be doing. Um, similarly, if you're, um, you know, about to go through, uh, you know, a hormonal therapy as part of transgender care something along those lines too if you're thinking though maybe you'd want to use your sperm for reproduction later in life that's another time point that that would be a consideration for for banking sperm prior to the initiation of hormones or going through any sort of gender affirmation surgery um, that's another time point where i think it's you know a very good consideration if that's the direction that you wish wish to go you know other other time points, you know, sometimes guys will come in and they're going to undergo a vasectomy and they're just, you know, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, you know, you never know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll just mention that to guys before a vasectomy is, you know, if you have any hesitancies, if, you know, this is always an option of something that you could do as well. Um, so there's and those answers to it. Um, 
the, the answer is I think that you know females are faced with more so as they relate to to age. I don't think that those are there as much for guys. Where you know, listen, you know, you're you're 32 now. Um, do you bank sperm now? Versus, you know, knowing that you don't have a, a consistent partner right now and you're you know, starting some point in your career where you don't think you're going to want to start a family for 10 years, but, you know, you know it's still important to you that that, that remains an option. I, I wouldn't say that it's common for, for the recommendation of banking at this point in time. So in a first appointment with you, people can expect to come in to discuss their history you know, go over the semen analysis they had previously done, a physical exam, and maybe blood work? Are there, like, imaging studies that you do or anything like that, too, that you tack on during that first appointment? Yeah, typically not too much imaging. Um, it's in my use of things like a, you know, a scroll ultrasound or something like that. It's, it's pretty rare. Um, usually I'm relying more on physical examination. But, you know, I like to use that, that first initial consultation um, – to get to know the patient or the couple, really. So sometimes I'll have just the, the male partner there. Sometimes the female partner will join in the conversation. I always welcome the female partner, uh, but ultimately it's it's the male and what they feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I want to get their medical history. I want to find out where they're at because I get some people that are coming in to see me right as they're starting uh, reproductive care. And I'm getting some people that are seeing me after you know, today I saw a couple for the first time that have had nine cycles of IVF. And so you're getting oh, okay. getting people at all sorts of different points in time. So it's understanding what they've gone through, where they're at, what, mm-hmm. you know, within their reproductive care. So um, that's what I, I'm talking with them about, you know, mm-hmm. basic medical history, reproductive history, those sorts of things. I'm usually doing a really focused physical examination. Um, and so I, I almost always want my initial consultation to be an in-person visit uh, because I want to be able to do that. Uh, for me, it's a basic general examination. You know, I'm taking a look at the, the anatomy. I'm, I'm palpating the testicles. I'm feeling the spermatic cord. Uh, I'm checking for a varicocele, which really just entails them trying to kind of strain. Sometimes they might have to lay down and stand up. But it's it's a pretty non non invasive uh, physical examination, um, and, and so usually, like I said, just general examination. Um, and then I I try to educate. So a big chunk of my initial visit is me taking their labs and talking to them about their labs, explaining what a semen analysis is, explaining the reference ranges, like I kind of mentioned earlier. Um, because I hate the term normal with semen analyses. So I want them to understand you know, where their numbers are sitting and where we might be able to improve things and what these numbers mean. Uh, and then I'm talking to them about their, their number trends too. So I'll usually take one semen analysis and discuss it pretty thoroughly. And then I, I'll try to take them through all their semen analyses together to see where their numbers have been sitting in relation to others over the, the course of time. So uh, we're discussing that and then we're trying to establish a game plan because usually it's that initial visit to order a few tests then that will give us more of a, a, a true diagnostic pathway. So it's a, I'd say pretty rare that they come in and we have like a diagnosis at the first visit and an established set treatment. Usually it's I'm seeing them ordering the blood work then 
uh, and maybe a repeat SEMA analysis with other testing and things along those lines. Um, we have some submitted questions to go through. Right. So I'm going to fire them off. Um, one question is, when will a reproductive urologist consider genetic testing as part of a workup? Uh, a, a few different time points. Uh, one is, or a couple of them are when there's azospermic men, where meaning they don't have any sperm in the ejaculate. And there's two kind of different pathways of genetic testing in that situation. So if it's a situation where you think it's a production-based issue, not a blockage-based issue, then you'll, you'll oftentimes get that uh, karyotype, which is the chromosome test, the Y microdeletion test to look at that. Um, if you're thinking it's an obstructive issue, um, then you're going to get some of that cystic fibrosis testing to rule, roll that out as a component of things. Um, the, the American Neurological Association guidelines recommend not just uh, the, the uh, karyotype and Y deletion for when it's azospermic, but also for, for any guys that have counts less than 5 million. So if counts are less than 5 million, and again, you're suggesting that it's some sort of abnormality from spermatogenic dysfunction, production dysfunction, then the recommendation is for those tests. Um, I have a discussion with patients on those tests when, it's, when, they're, when we're thinking about ordering. Because at the end of the day, again, it's, it's typically more of a diagnostic type test, not something that I can treat. And there can be a cost burden associated with some of those tests if people don't have insurance coverage. Um, you know, I, I've had two different arms of, of my career and my practice. One of them is in a university setting. One of them is with uh, you know, a private reproductive endocrinology group uh, that I work with. And at the, the university center, um, you know, I get a lot of patients that don't necessarily have financial means that I'm having uh, pretty significant discussions about what tests are and what the implications of not being able to get them to. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, how that plays a role in care. So um, I got sidetracked a little bit there, but no, <laughs> no, no, no. The, the genetic testing, that's when we're typically getting the genetic testing is when counts are low. The other instance we might get something is in situations of recurrent pregnancy loss. So mm -hmm. people are having, you know, multiple miscarriages. Then we're going to look at things like the karyotype, that chromosomal test to look for what's called translocations where portions of, of one arm of a chromosome are in a different position that might be impacting or, or contributing to the loss. Does caffeine affect sperm quality? Yeah, you know, this is one of those things where I, I tell guys, try not to go overboard. Um, I think that it's pretty rare that caffeine would be the sole reason that people are having trouble conceiving. Um, and so I, I try to tell them to just drink caffeine in, in moderation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm saying don't don't go and drink an entire you know, pot of coffee in a day. Don't don't drink 10, 10 Red Bulls. Um, mm -hmm. But if you're having you know, one to two cups, I don't think that that's going to be the especially you know, one. Obviously, it's just fine. But mm -hmm. if you're you're getting to that two to three cups. Well, try not to do that consistently, but having two to three cups of coffee or something uh, every once in a while is just fine. And how do you feel about marijuana use? Uh, marijuana use, I think, is something that I recommend against habitual use. Mm -hmm. So I think marijuana has a ton of benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not somebody who's out here saying that it's it's a drug that you need to stay away from and you're smoking marijuana. So you're causing all these problems. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, and I think that the, we're seeing more and more data to kind of support that too. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't been regulated in the past. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what, what we know or what we've looked at, it's, it's habitual, which is usually like a, a daily or multiple times daily type use in comparison to a recreational, so every so often use. Mm-hmm. And the recreational use doesn't really seem to have too much of an impact on things, but the habitual use can't, so it can decrease semen parameters. And mm-hmm. so what I tell guys is if they're using it daily or multiple times daily, scale back. Try to, try mm-hmm. to get it where maybe a few times a week. Um, oh. And if a guy tells me that he's you know smoking once or twice on the weekend, I say, that's okay. I yeah. am not overly concerned, and I'm not yeah. going to say that that's causing their reproductive problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at the end of the day, hey, stress is a big factor too. And yeah. sometimes just you know, smoking a little bit might help relax people and help calm things mm-hmm. down. Do you think the method matters, like smoking versus edible? Like, Do you think that how it's absorbed affects differently? Yeah, if I'm being very honest, I'd have to look in more in depth as to. Yeah. I mean, I'm just uh, curious. The data, the data behind yeah. that. I, I'm typically more concerned if somebody's habitually using smoking than if somebody mm-hmm. is habitually using edibles. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe they're both contributing the same way. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and but typically, I'm, I'm more concerned if, if somebody's using uh, or if somebody's smoking. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what is DNA fragmentation and when should you consider this testing? So this is something that I'd say is, uh, I want to say it's a hot topic, but I feel like it's been a hot topic for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't know if we can still say that's a hot topic. Then. But yeah. there's a lot of debate on, on how to use this test and what's right and what's wrong with it and, um, and how we should be treating it. So sperm DNA fragmentation is basically it's assessing the DNA integrity um it's it's looking at the structure we're not looking for like specific gene defects or anything like that basically is this dna being passed in a fashion that then can be transcribed and allow for appropriate cell divisions Mm -hmm. so can can cells divide and embryos form and such and um we have different ways of testing it um and it's something where uh can look at it and if there's real high rates of dna fragmentation well that can be associated with you know, decreased uh, embryo development or worse out embryo development increased rates of miscarriage um, a little bit lower rates of implantation so it, it can impact reproductive outcomes uh, these can be elevated rates of, of dna fragmentation can be associated with you know, smoking it can be associated with uh, seals. So there's a lot of different factors that can can cause that as well. And sometimes we have an explanation. Sometimes we don't necessarily have a clear-cut explanation for why the sperm DNA fragmentation is elevated. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that I personally use the test um, or, or look for it is if a couple is having recurrent miscarriages, um, it's a test or recurrent pregnancy loss, um, I will I'll, I'll order it then. Um, if a guy has a varicocele and we're trying to determine the clinical significance of the varicocele and he's a little bit on the fence as to whether he wants to, let's say, pursue a varicocelectomy versus go to 
uh, in vitro fertilization. We might get the test to, to help determine what we're thinking in terms of its clinical significance. That's one way a varicose seal can, can impact fertility, by no means the, the only way a varicose seal can impact fertility, uh, but it can, it can help in that fashion a little bit. Uh, and or if a couple is having poor outcomes with in vitro fertilization, um, we're, we'll usually use it as if you know around day three when we're starting to see more of that sperm contribution to embryo development, and we're seeing all the embryos kind of halt at that point in time and nothing really progress, um, then we'll, we'll order it then too. And so if if we have a known cause of the DNA fragmentation, well, then the obvious answer is, well, let's, let's address that cause. You're a smoker, stop smoking. Uh, you know, we have a varicocele, consider varicocelectomy. Um, if there's not really a, a clear etiology, then you can, you can consider extracting sperm from the testicle and using testicular sperm for assisted reproduction then too. It does, it does make it so that you're then, you're in IVF then. You know, testicular sperm has to be used for ICSI. But, uh, but if a couple's, there already, they're not getting that embryo development. There's lower rates of DNA fragmentation with testicular sperm than there is with ejaculated sperm. So that's one of the other means of, of where you could you could kind of treat that or address that. Are there any imaging studies that could be done or should be done when looking for male factor infertility? I don't think that there's any imaging studies that are done at like baseline testing. Um, you know, scrotal, something like a scrotal ultrasound might be done if a physical examination is, is limited by, let's say, body happiness. The guy's a little bit, a little bit heavier, uh, and mm -hmm. I can't feel the spermatic cord well. A varicocele could be identified on, a, um, on an ultrasound. Uh, a varicocele at the end of the day is a physical exam diagnosis, so it's not something that needs to be diagnosed by ultrasound. If, if there's something that is a it's a clear physical examination and you can't feel a varicocele, but you get an ultrasound and it says, oh, there's a varicocele diagnosed by like a backwards flow of blood or a dilation vein, that's called a subclinical varicocele. Those have not been demonstrated to have impacts on, on fertility. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be a significant. So, uh, you know, there's, a, I'd say, somewhat of a role there, but not necessarily a clear-cut role for scrotal ultrasound. It's more so unique situations. Sometimes also you can do what's called a, a transrectal ultrasound, which is what it sounds like. Um, and that's an ultrasound where we're using a, a probe that's placed in the rectum. And we're looking at the, the prostate area, the seminal vesicles, which are accessory glands that help contribute fluid to the ejaculate. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking for dilation. That might be in a situation where we think there's a blockage of the reproductive tract. And we're trying to see if there's dilation or if there's a cyst in the prostate that's causing blockage, something that we could potentially treat to relieve the blockage. Uh, to help a guy produce produce an ejaculate. So we can do a transrectal ultrasound to diagnose that, or sometimes an MRI can be done to, to assess that as well. Uh, those are probably the most common imaging that's done uh, for male reproductive care. Okay. Um, let's see. This one is, what is the difference between a microtessie and a tessie, and when would you use these? So that, that's another good question, um, because I think there's a lot of confusion. The way the wording is, uh, people often think the opposite. So a tessie is the less invasive of the two. 
a TESI is testicular sperm extraction. And that's typically going to be done in scenarios where uh, there's both of them are sperm extraction techniques. Um, and so typically used when there's not sperm in the ejaculate, let's say. Uh, and so you're going to do a TESI if there's an obstruction. So if he, let's say a guy's had a vasectomy, he doesn't want to do a vasectomy reversal, but he wants to do, uh, they're going to go with a sperm extraction IVF. Well, we, you know, from what we know, this guy you know, maybe has had children before, you know, we get some basic hormone testing that doesn't suggest any abnormalities in sperm production. He's not using any medications that would shut down his, his sperm production. We have pretty high confidence that the testicles are functioning and producing sperm normally. Then we do a testy, which is just a real small incision on the scrotum. Uh, it can be done, you know, it, pretty quickly. It's usually maybe a 15, 20 minute procedure. Guys recover really well. It's very well tolerated. Um, and so we're gonna, we're gonna usually use that with pretty high rates of success, greater than 95% chances of finding oh, wow. sperm in those scenarios. Uh, a micro testy, is the more invasive. So the micro doesn't relate to like the size of the incision or anything like that. Micro is for the, the operating microscope that we use. Oh. So with that, we're actually going to both testicles. And this is always the one that's tough to explain to guys because they cringe a little bit. We, we yeah. bivalve the testicle. And so basically kind of open it up, make an incision across it and open it up and bivalve it. And then we use an operating microscope to look at all the different tubules that are composing a testicle. I always describe a testicle kind of like the inside of a baseball that's wrapped with all that string and such. Testicles are composed of all these different tubules. And under that magnification, we can see dilated tubules. And so we try to target those to be harvested for sperm processing and then for cryopreservation. Because those dilated tubules have been found to be more likely to, to contain sperm. So we use that in instances of, of non-obstructive azoospermia, where it's not an obstruction, where it's more of a production issue. And with that, the success rates of finding sperm are going to be more along the lines of 40 to 60 percent. Mm. So it's, it's not something, it's not those real high rates because something is, is abnormal within that production of the testicle. And the way that testicles are is that they're, the word we used to describe as heterogeneous. What that means is that it's not uniform. It's not same throughout. There could be areas where sperm production might be occurring at small rates that's just not making it to the ejaculate. But with an operating microscope, we might be able to find those areas. Mm -hmm. So with that procedure, it's usually going to be, I'd say, on average, probably about a two-hour surgical procedure. Oh. Because you're looking, because you have to find. Yeah, yeah, because we're we're opening that testicle up. We're using that microscope to kind of look very thoroughly through the, the tubules um, and try to harvest, harvest all those. Um, and then the recovery time period is a little bit more just because we're, we're doing a little bit yeah. more. So I always tell guys, you know, feel you got that ache. Um, you know, first day you might feel like, like we kicked you. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, over the course of the next week, you're feeling in, improved. You know, time period where there's any narcotic pain medication uses, if they need any, it's usually maybe within that first day. We try to greatly limit that that use uh, as is too. Mm -hmm. Is there a number limit that you can do these? Like, is this an instance where you might consider 
extracting as many as you can and then freezing them so you don't have to go back in to look for more or yeah if i'm doing if i'm doing a tessie my hope is always that it's the only one time that i'm doing a tessie so mm-hmm. you know there's different ways of abstracting sperm when it's uh, when it's an obstruction so you can also do something called a tessa which is an aspiration mm-hmm. i favor a tessie which is more of that biopsy where you're taking tissue because you get a little bit better yield and my hope is then i don't have to do this again uh, you know there's not high complication rates with this guys recover very well so that's why i tend to personally prefer that procedure for us um, you know with with things like microtest yeah you can go back like you know my hope always is that they have multiple vials uh, of sperm frozen following a procedure where you know if they have a cycle that's unsuccessful well they'll just be able to use another yeah. sample that they won't have to go back and do another procedure but if they you know run out of of sperm or or if somebody's had a microtesty that was done by somebody else that I don't have an operative report to really understand the technique or maybe mm-hmm. somebody that I'm not as familiar with, um, don't know how they work. Yeah, I might consider having a discussion about them, about doing a repeat microtessie. Uh, but but usually if a microtessie is done, if I know if I'm doing a microtessie and if I don't have, have success with it in terms of finding sperm, I'm rarely repeating it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then the next question is about um, vasectomy reversal. How effective is vasectomy reversal in bringing back fertility? So it's, it's actually really uh, effective. I, th- I think that gets a little bit of a bad rap. I think that people think it's not as effective as it really is. I mean, the rates of, of getting sperm back into the ejaculate, if this is a procedure that's done you know, relatively soon after after a, a vasectomy, meaning if it's in the first like, 10 years or so, mm-hmm. then you're going to see rates that are close to 90% in terms of getting sperm oh, yeah. back into the ejaculate. Um, it's a lot more involved procedure, um, but uh, but the techniques in, in, with these, have, you know, we have good rates. Um, yeah. A lot of that depends on what ends up happening, though, too. So if we go in there and we're just putting, putting the two ends of the vast deference back together, mm-hmm. that's when we're seeing those those high rates of success. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we're always hoping for. But that's not always the case of what happens. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we might go in there and you know, things are the way that the vasectomy was done. There's not a, a, a end that's close to the testicle that we have room to connect it to. So uh-huh. then we're connecting it to this gland called the epididymis. We're opening that up and finding an epididymal tubule. I was describing it as like the acorn cap if the on the on the acorn, if the acorn is the testicle, the acorn cap is the is the epididymis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sperm travels from testicle, epididymis, and then to the vast deferens. So mm-hmm. there's those tubules in, within there. And if we're attaching that vast deferens to the epididymis, the success rates drop quite a bit with, with the procedure. So then in terms of finding sperm in the ejaculate, you're going to drop closer to the invest 60% chance of finding sperm in the, in the ejaculate or so. And it can take longer to get sperm into the ejaculate. So, it, you know, it might take up to a year if you're, if you're mm. doing epididymal vasostomy as opposed to vasovasostomy. Vasovasostomy being the two ends of the vast deference. Mm-hmm. Two ends of the vast deference. Usually, I'm going to give it about six months to kind of show itself and see sperm in the ejaculate. But I'll say typically, I'm seeing sperm in the ejaculate with with one of the first couple of semen analysis, and I start checking mm-hmm. at eight week 
weeks, uh, six to eight weeks postoperatively, typically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, if people want to see you, if people want to contact you, what's the best way that they can do that? Yes. Yeah, they have so, additional uh, questions. I'm, I'm, I'm located in Chicago, so that's where I'm at. That's where I see see my patients. Um, I, you know, like I said, I try to do a one visit um, in person, and then we can do virtual virtual visits as well. Um, I, I do have an Indiana state license as well, so I can do virtual appointments with patients from the state of Indiana too. My mm -hmm. my clinic number for scheduling is is eight seven seven three two four 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 eight three and that's probably going to be the best means of of contacting me as well mm -hmm. is going through our clinic um you know i i it's, it's one of my goals of mine but i would say I, i'm not a big social media person right right now so i that's something i need to to build out in my practice uh, it's just uh, it just hasn't happened to happen to date so uh, I would say the, the best means is probably going to be going going through that avenue, uh, but happy to, to help out in any sort of way. I love these opportunities to to kind of get awareness out there more than anything yeah. else, to help guys realize that, you know, that they're a component of it and there's doctors for them, too. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's people who are focusing on this so that they can be a part of, of the solution as well. Yeah. And I think that a lot of um, people are afraid to talk about it too. I mean, much like in the women's side of things, I don't, well, and maybe even more, I, I think that there's a lot of stigma behind men talking about some of these issues that they're having. It's not like it's something that they talk about at their barbecues or anything like, Hey, no, by the yeah, way, yeah. are you having trouble? You know, like you're, you're hundred percent right. Guys, guys don't talk about this for the most part. Um, you know, like I think of it as a, a knock on their masculinity, which I, I hate that guys, you know, carry that burden and that thought, but but a lot of them do, um, and you know, there's a lot of things that we can do to treat them and, and help them out, and and a lot of guys will we'll test them, and, and there's not an abnormality too. So, you know, I think that there's just that anxiety because they they don't know what we're going to find, and they also don't they don't know what we're going to do. So, hopefully, some of this information out there helps them understand that what we're going to do in our evaluation, what they're going to talk about, and that they understand that. Every single day, this is what I'm talking to guys about. So that it's, it's not an uncommon thing. It's it's not, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that are going through this. Um, and, and it's a safe place to have these discussions, to talk about erections, to talk about sex, to talk about sperm and all these different things. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that there aren't very many reproductive urologists in the U.S. So if people are having trouble finding a urologist in their area that specializes, what's the next best thing they can do? Or what's a resource they could see if there's one in their area if they can't come see you in Illinois? Yeah, I, I would say that, um, first of all, they could talk to their um, their partners, if their partner has an established reproductive endocrinologist, usually they're going to have some physician that they work with or that they may partner with that, that feels comfortable managing the male side of things. So I think that that's probably one of the better starting points. Um, unfortunately, it, it isn't a big field of, of medicine, um, but I think that telehealth is expanding and, and opening a lot more doors for people too. So um, if there's an academic institution within the state or a relatively close area, I think that's always a good place to start as well. Um, and then 
you know, oftentimes urologists are, are a good starting point too, because if there's a urologist in your community, they would, they would hopefully be able to pick up, you know, obvious significant factors. They would be able to talk about the basics of a SEMA analysis, do a physical examination, pick up if there was something, you know, significantly abnormal. And so they'd give you a starting point on the discussion too. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that those are kind of the starting points where I would, I would recommend. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you for spending so much time with us today and sharing so much great information. Um, I don't know that you planned on spending this much time, so sorry about that. <laughs> I'm like, I have a tendency <laughs> know, to okay. just drag you know, it out. <laughs> it's it's going to be as much time as we needed. This was, yeah. this was fun. So, you know, this is what looks here, you know, you get older. This is what fun Friday nights are about. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. I'm like, this is so exciting. I love learning new <laughs> stuff, you know, but I honestly, I do really want to thank you for spending so much time with us today and sharing all this information. And like I said, I am open to more discussion about this because like everything else, I think in fertility, we just need more time, more discussion, more awareness on all this stuff. And I just think that we probably don't talk about it quite as much. Like I said, so much focus on the female side of things because so much happens to us in in our bodies yeah. but i think you know they say like 40 to 50 percent of the problem can occur uh, from male factor as well right so yeah. i i think that that's important to discuss so and i would love to talk about it some more so you know the next time we can certainly take a deeper dive into some of these things if if you'd like to i'd love to have you back yeah, that'd be great. And I, I'd encourage, you know, the, the listeners and everything to, to submit questions or, or whatnot, too, to let us know what they want to know about as well. Yeah. Uh, to kind of help guide some of these discussions, because I'm happy to to jump into any aspect of it. If it's an area where uh, where we need to dig in, let's let's do it. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, thank you so much for today. And we will connect again soon. All right. Thank you. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes. And I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.